0: Three, two, one. What? Reversal of fortune. That's why I tell my friends everything happens for seriously, a reason. Seriously, you had one job. I, just, I, I can't Jeez. with some of these people. I look down your goddamn cell phone. I don't think my dad even knows how to use a computer. Uh, Would you rather? Right, trust me, take no, my but advice. seriously, that legit happened. Hello, Namaste, Shalom, and welcome to Nervous Habits, episode two. I'm your host, Ricky Rosen, and essentially this is a podcast about, well, just about everything, uh, ranging from pop culture to philosophy to nutrition to dating and back again. Uh, This week, we're going to be covering a couple of really exciting topics, including why more of us should embrace Buddhism, what your relentless cell phone addiction is doing to your brains, and how to cut back on the screen-sucking and whether the steroid bros Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens will ever make it into the all-elusive Baseball Hall of Fame. Uh, keep sending those emails in, nervoushabitspodcast at gmail.com. I did realize after listening to, to last week's pod uh, that I, I tend to talk into the mic a lot, uh, kind of like this. So going to try to you know not, not get like too, too excited and keep my distance from this mic. guess it's just another one of my nervous home. habits. So, in the spirit of Buddhism, uh, let's let's start things off light um, with uh, you know a, a little a little joke here. So, there's a Buddhist man and there's a tofu hot dog vendor. You know, 2019, those millennials love their their tofu hot dogs, and the Buddhist man goes up to the tofu hot dog vendor and he says, "Make me one of everything." You know, then after getting his tofu hot dog. Uh, the Buddhist guy hands the vendor a $20 bill. And, you know, these, these tofu hot dogs are pretty expensive, but they're not 20 bucks. The vendor takes the money and, you know, just begins to help the next customer. So the Buddhist, he looks a little bit puzzled. And he's asking the vendor, wait a sec, where's my change? So the vendor looks at him and he goes, change comes from within. <laughs> um, so Buddhism, if you don't know, is the world's fourth largest religion. Uh, it's behind Christianity, Islam, and... And secularism uh, slash atheism, which feels weird to call it a religion since, you know, the absence of religion doesn't exactly qualify. But who am I to argue with uh, with Wikipedia? Anyway, so Buddhism originated with this guy. You might have heard of him, Siddhartha Gautama. And according to Buddhist tradition, uh, Gautama was the heir to a small kingdom in India around 500 B.C. And he, he saw all the suffering around him. And, you know, he had a hard time with it. And so at the age of 29, he slipped away from his palace in the middle of the night, and he ended up traveling through India for years, um, just watching, uh, you know, people, He's pretty much a, a people watcher, a little bit of a voyeur, this, this Gotama, And he realized that no matter what people achieved, no matter how much wealth or prosperity they attained, they were never content. So Gotama made it his mission to figure out, you know, how could he find a way out of this suffering? So he spent years and years, you know, meditating and ruminating on this issue when he's traveling. You know, he, he, he completely forsaked all of his, his wealth and, um, you know, it being the heir to the throne. And the conclusion he arrived at, Gotama, was suffering isn't the product of circumstance or misfortune, but it's inherent in the human mind. So essentially the root of Buddhism is humans will always suffer because it's just in our nature. You know, no matter what we experience, good, bad. Uh, our mind is going to react with desire and craving. You know, if you experience something painful or distasteful, obviously, you know your mind's going to desire to be rid of that pain or distaste. But conversely, if you experience something pleasant, you know you're going to desire that the pleasant uh, that the uh, the pleasure remains. Right? We all know those people who, you know, they they get a raise at work or um you know they they were looking for a relationship and they finally meet the the guy or girl of their dreams and yet you know. They, they're still looking for that that next thing, whether that be even more money or, you know, someone even more attractive or, or you know, someone who can check even more boxes. And Buddhists, like Gautama, um, argue that the life cycle of a person is just to continually chase these desires. And, you know, it's a little fatalistic, but it inevitably will lead to suffering. So the Buddhist mind, the way to escape this this cycle... Is to essentially, like, adopt the mindset that whenever we experience something pleasant or unpleasant, we should experience it as it is, right? Like, just, just let it happen. Um, you see this a lot in cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, patients are told not to judge their feelings; just let them pass. You know, uh, if if something makes you anxious uh, and you feel like a uh, you know a tightness in your chest, um, you know, don't react to it don't judge the sensation, just, just let it be, just accept it as it is. And I know some of you out there, uh, you know, w- will listen to this and think it's kind of like abstract meditative bullshit, you know, but there is something to be said for this way of, of thinking, um, by training your mind to accept sadness as sadness, joy is joy, and you know, pain is pain, you do your best to, to minimize suffering. Um, And that's like, that's the ultimate goal of Buddhism, right? Like to achieve the elusive nirvana, not, not the band nirvana, which a lot of the, the younger listeners probably never heard of. Um, but nirvana being a complete liberation of all suffering, um, and allegedly Gotama achieved this, but nobody else has, or, or very few people have, um, and Buddhists, uh, you know, their ideology is that if you follow, you adhere to the four noble truths. Right? D- humans suffer. Suffering comes from desire, and if you destroy desire, you destroy suffering. Um, I, I think that was four. <laughs> uh, but if, but if you can live that kind of lifestyle, um, then you'll come close to, you know, maybe not nirvana, but minimizing the suffering, and. In America, in 2019, you know we live in this consumerist economy. Everyone is a materialist, even if you claim not to be. You know you want the newest technology. Uh, years ago, it was you know an iPhone or an iPad or um, you know Kindle, and now now people have drones and you know uh, at the Amazon Alexa or the Apple Watch. It's I was at the gym the other day. And I look over and I see this kid um, by the benches who's – he's got to be like 10, 11 years old. This kid had an Apple Watch. He was wearing like designer sneakers. He had an Apple Watch. He had AirPods. I'm over here <laughs> with my like ripped gloves, like my old sneakers. And um, you know. And, and and by the way, I, that's not to say that I am exempt from, from materialism. I'm a materialist just like anyone else. But – you know kids like that are growing up in this this kind of age and you know people will want these the nicest clothes and the best looking food and you know not for the thing itself but because we're all so wrapped up in image and status and becoming validated by the number of likes and followers we have on instagram you know all this is not news you guys have probably heard this hundreds of times every which way but just to shed light on it from a different perspective All of this has made suffering and desire as inevitable as ever, right? Like this, this age that we live in, um, it reminds me one of my favorite books and I'm going to be talking a lot about books. I don't, if you're listening out there, you got to make a tally of whether or not I make more book references or movie references on this pod, but it reminds me of one of my favorite books is, uh, the subtle art of not giving a fuck by Mark Manson, um, Excellent, excellent, excellent book. Excellent book. Uh, it's kind of like um, it's a self improvement lifestyle book, much like How to Win Friends and Influence People, but it's it's more modern uh, and it's more applicable for you know the the social media generation, the uh, the Insta thoughts or I I don't know what you know we we got to figure out like a a name for for the Instagram generation, but in the book. Manson talks a lot about everything we're saying with desire and suffering and, and how culture has uh, created conditions conducive for these things to be perpetuated. And Manson calls this the feedback loop from hell. And I'm paraphrasing Manson now, but he says, like, our culture is so obsessed, is so obsessively focused on unrealistically positive expectations. You have to be healthier, be happier, be better than anyone else, be smarter, be faster, more jacked, more skinny, more perfect, you know, better looking. It's, but when you stop and think about it, Manson says, conventional life advice is always fixated on what we lack. You know, you have to be skinnier because right now you're not skinny enough. You have to make more money because you don't have enough money right now. Um, You have to buy better clothes because your wardrobe is shit. And this, this fixation on, uh, on inadequacy on you know what what we 're missing with that way of thinking guys we 're never going to be happy like 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 it's just it's it 's a very cut and dry equation if we 're always missing these things and culture is reinforcing um you know what we need in order to achieve what we 're looking for we 're never going to be happy um Manson says. And this is, this is a direct quote if I can find it, uh, but this really encapsulates what we're talking about. He says, the desire for more positive experience is in itself a negative experience. And paradoxically, the acceptance of one's negative experience is in itself a positive experience. I'm going to read that again because I talk quickly. It's, it's a confusing line, but... The desire for more positive experience is in itself a negative experience. And paradoxically, the acceptance of one's negative experience is itself a positive experience. So he calls it the backwards law. The idea that the more you pursue feeling better all the time, the less satisfied you become. And pursuing something only reinforces the fact that you lack it in the first place. All right, so... The more desperately you want to be rich or, um, you know, the more unworthy you feel, regardless of how much money you actually make, Manson's solution, you know, rather than avoiding suffering and closing your eyes and pretending that it doesn't exist and, you know, posting the highlights on, on social media, living in this, in this world that doesn't exist, his solution is just embrace it. You know, I mentioned in, in the first episode a little vignette from uh, Victor Frankl's man, Search for Meaning. How he wrote about how uh, every man's, uh, you know, sometimes it's man's mission to suffer and, and you should suffer well. Th- I think that's what Manson, I, I don't know if he read Man's Search for Meaning, but the, the themes are the same. I think that's what he's saying. You know, don't go on Instagram posting an old photo of you chilling in a swimsuit on a beach somewhere when you're feeling lonely and depressed. You know, staring at your phone waiting for the, the, the validation to, you know, to come through. Trying to avoid pain. Um, because when you try to eschew those negative feelings, you're giving too many fucks about them to begin with, according to Manson. So all this is to say, let's go back to Buddhism, is if we become more Buddhist in our philosophy, right? Like if we accept things as they are instead of you know, focusing on, on, the, on what's lacking – Uh, as as Manson said, the suffering will attenuate. Um, and this doesn't mean, you know, that you guys have to start dressing like Buddhist monks and, uh, you know, lighting candles around your apartment and and meditating six times a day. You want to do that? You know, dude, be, be my guest. I am, I'm all for it. You know, lifestyle changes do, you know, do what makes you happy, but it's just, it's just like a mindset. You know, a lot of people nowadays, I think meditation has also become kind of kind of like trendy and fatty. A lot of people um, have, you know, quotes, Buddhist quotes, you know, in their room. My sister has a poster of Buddha with, you know, the – I think it's like the chakras. I'm, who even knows? But that's, that's great. Uh, but on the simplest level possible, it's about understanding that suffering is inevitable um, and kind of reframing the way that you experience – life's pleasures and pains to alleviate that suffering as much as possible. So cell phones. There has been so, 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 so much said about cell phones in the last five, six years. I feel like I, I you know, I don't want to, I don't want to just rehash um, everything you guys have heard. I, I, I want to, you know, I want this to be entertaining and, and informative and but at its at its core cell phone has changed not not just how we communicate and how we think and all that jazz but i think the single biggest impact that cell phones have had on our minds is we no longer need to or want to feel boredom okay so i'm 26 and my sisters are close in age to be so we grew up in the 90s before cell phones were around um literally as children listen to some of the stuff we did we did we drew in coloring books we played pickup sticks and go fish we played hand games like uh concentration 64 or bubblegum bubblegum in a dish and when we ran out of games to play we would just make stuff up right we would i would take stuffed animals out of my little sister's room assign them careers and personalities and act out parties and reunions for them like like this is I mean, like, can you imagine a kid today doing that? One time we, you know, we had absolutely nothing planned for an entire day. So the three of us made a list, like a little book on loose-leaf paper of all of the first names in the entire world, like a, maybe like a primitive, primitive sporkle. Uh, we, we would take like hefty Crayola markers. We just went down the list, boys' names, A to Z, girls' names, A to Z. We made like a you know fancy loose leaf laminates um denoting ourselves as the authors and it this was the life of a you know a child i mean we were 7 8 but this was this was us up until we were 13 you know we we would even we would even go outside guys that's i mean that's life changing we we would literally walk around the top of the stones surrounding the rock garden in our backyard pretending the grass was lava. You know, our, our minds were constantly working, um, creating new scenarios and, and you know, using that imagination. And why am I sharing this with you? Because I, I, I want to draw a contrast between children in 2002 or you know, whatever that was, 2000, the 90s, and children in 2019 where they're empowered to choose how they want to spend their time. Right, like they they don't have to sit around being bored, you know, playing in rock gardens and with their sister stuffed animals. Um, they can post pictures on Instagram or Snapchat. They can make up hand games with you know their siblings or send friends gifs on Facebook Messenger. And you know, what do you think they're gonna choose? I was reading. Um, I'm trying to remember what what book this was. This this might have been Bored and Brilliant, uh, which which I'll get to a little bit later. But there was a summer camp where. Essentially, they they would let the kids use their cell phones during the day, but what they noticed was um, what they noticed was if the kids had their cell phones, they weren't really socializing. You know, they were just sitting isolated individually on their phones, and then they took the phones away, and children began you know being kids, using their imagination, and you know this this is it, it's a common sense. It wasn't like a revolutionary. Experiment by any means, but I don't know. Like the scary thing is, it's not even just children that are experiencing this. I mean, I work in you know Midtown Manhattan, and every day, you know, I'm I'm walking to work, I'm commuting, and I look at the passerby's, and I I literally cannot see their their eyes. You know, their their eyes are buried in their six by three inch iPhones, you know, they're tripping on stairs, they're walking into telephone poles, you know, there are people literally, you know, walking into traffic because they're, you know, they're looking at their, at their phones. And, you know, the, the collective headspace in America, in my opinion, it's ruled by one particular fear. And, you know, it's not the fear of death or abandonment, the fear of being alone. I think it's the fear of being bored. Um, and the the DSM, the Diagnostic Statist- Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, it's like the gold standard for modern day psychosis. It doesn't really have a classification for for either the fear of being bored or the fear of, or rather, uh, cell phone addiction in general. I mean, I think, fa- uh, fat, fosophobia, um, THAASO phobia. I think that's like the fear of, of sit, sitting idly, but not necessarily the fear of the cognitive implications of being bored. Um, there's something called no mo phobia, no mobile phone phobia. That's not in the DSM right now. It could be in the next year or two. But right now here's, here's the situation. so you can like kind of kind of understand the seriousness. 75% of people in 2019, I, I'm sorry, this was 2018, keep their smartphones five feet or less away at all times, right? And they, they report feeling extreme nervousness, anxiety, and even panic when they lack constant access to their phones. Um, and according to, to Apple, excuse me, start, smartphone users are checking their phones around 80 times a day on average. Now, I, I kind of want you to like just ponder that for a moment. It's it's a cell phone is is like a it's an object. It's a small little electrical box, and at any moment in the day, you always know where your cell phone is. It's it becomes like a like a like a child, you know. I mean, if you're listening to this on a cell phone, your cell phone's probably in your pocket or on your desk. That's fine. But could, can you imagine any other object? Like if I asked you right now, if I said let's say you're, you're a baseball fan, you know, where, where's your New York Mets cap? Or, um, you know, where's, where's your baseball glove? You know, where's your sunglasses? Um, even other devices, you know, where's, where's your laptop? Where's your. I'd venture to guess you'd probably have to, to think about it, for, to recall. But a cell phone, just like neurologically, we, we have a tracer where we always need to know the exact latitude and longitude of the phone. And the, the way that these engineers have crafted applications and the most valuable resource that we have, guys, and, and I apologize if I'm meandering, I, it's, 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 a, it's a very complicated subject and there's a lot to say here. The most powerful thing that we have, the most powerful currency, isn't money. Time is, is absolutely up there. It's attention. Right, like at any given moment, what are we paying attention to? Are you paying attention to what's on the television, what's on the radio? You know, my voice. Um, you know, what's happening outside your your office window, and these software engineers that are creating applications, um, you know, Instagram and Facebook and, and Twitter and what have you. They are profiting off of our attention because the more we look at these apps, the more advertising revenue they receive from um, third-party corporations, okay? So it is in their best interest and people in Facebook have come out publicly and said it is in their best to perpetuate this addiction, to make it so that we are never bored and we are always staring at our cell phones, okay? Go for a ride in, in an elevator in any any elevator in the world today, it's 10 to 15 seconds. Okay, depending on you know, I work, I worked at City Hall, so those those were like 45 seconds. But every person you see in the elevator, guys, will reach into his or her pocket, extract their phones, and hurriedly stroke their screens with their pointer fi- pit fingers for a moment or two before depositing the device back into their pockets. You know, there's there's nothing that nothing like life-threatening. You know that, that, that can't wait until they get off the elevator. You know what I'm saying? It's not like, but it's this craving that we have for for stimulation, for new information, um, and as I said, you know, these companies do not have our best interest at heart. You know, Steve Jobs. This is this has been this has been said very publicly. Steve Jobs wouldn't let his own children use these devices um, because he he knew firsthand how dangerous they were. Um, so. And, and by the way, by the way, there has been pushback against this. Um, you know, you see if you have the new iOS, I think it's like eleven or twelve. I, guys, I I lost count. I don't I don't know what number they're up to. But if you look at like the new iOS, they have this feature under settings called Screen Time, where it shows you how much time you've spent, um, you know, looking at your phone or, or ha- you know having your phone active, and it also shows you how many pickups a day, which is how many times you've unlocked your phone. And it's startling. I asked my buddy at work, I said, how, you know, just check this. His was six hours. Six hours, guys. You know, you're up from, I don't know, uh, 8 a.m. To, to 12 a.m. That's what, 16 hours? Six of those hours, you're staring at a little screen. And by the way, this is not even talking about like the, the damage to your back or your neck or, you know, your, your vision. That's you know, we're just talking about cognitive right now. That's six hours a day. So they receive pushback guys where essentially the government and, you know, nonprofits, people that actually care about human well-being, families said, look, we need to to cut back on this. So screen time not only allows you to become aware of how much you're checking your phone, but to set limits. Like if, you know, if you only want three, three hours a day and then the phone shuts off. So that's, I guess that's something, you know, there's something to be said for that. But I just think, you know, getting back to we we talked a lot in the last segment about uh, culture, and you know the desire to, to compensate for what we're lacking. People were concerned back in the uh, in the 1500s that the invention of the printing press would mean the death of education. That didn't happen, right? People were troubled when TV was invented in the 1900s. What would that mean for books in Alex? People would, would never read again. People would never think. They'd just be parked in front of the TV. That didn't happen. And you know, you talk to some people about the cell phones and, and stuff that I'm saying, and they'll turn around and be like, you know, it's it's whatever. This this has happened before. We'll be fine. But I actually argue, you know, this is on a level, the um, proliferation of the cell phone in the last 10, 15 years, on a level we've never seen in human history. Because the other examples that I mentioned, particularly the TV, that was escapism. But with the cell phone, guys, it's complete and uninterrupted escape. As I said, it used to be like 80 to 90% of our days would be spent like living in the real world, punctuated by short periods of virtual interfacing with instant messaging or online research or other activity done on a computer, right? Like you spend an hour back in the AOL days, on uh, my, my sister would do like Neopets, like, have a hotel, whatever. Um, but now the reverse is happening, guys. Our days, our very lives are spent almost exclusively on the web or the cloud. And the real world now is the punctuation. So, like, instead of 80 to 90% of the day in the real world and 10 to 20% on the computers, it's 80 to 90% screen sucking in front of a, a phone or a computer. And then 10 to 20% in the real world. And it's, it's particularly troubling for children, you guys. You know, we grew up learning penmanship and, and writing everything. And these kids are growing up. And, and they're texting. I was in a cafe in my neighborhood last month. I was, you know, sipping on my iced coffee, submerged in one of these books that I don't shut up about. And a group of three boys, you know, around 10 or 11... They, they walked in. They were, they were just teasing each other and something happened, about, <laughs> something happened at school that day. I, I wasn't being weird. I was like half listening. I kind of smiled, thinking back to the way my friends and I used to do the same thing when we were that age. But the boys walk over to a table, these kids. They sit down and in an almost synchronized fashion, they just withdrew their cell phones. And I glanced up at various times over the next hour and the boys were still sitting at that table in silence each one immersed in his own world. When I was that age, my friends and I would would sit at, at the cafeteria for an hour just exchanging lines from SpongeBob, laughing until in, in, until my face hurt because my smile was so tight. I mean, playing basketball, I... When I was a kid, I printed out something called the shit quiz, and I brought it in into my cafeteria, and uh, <laughs> I got in big trouble. But um, from the shit quiz, but that was that was what we did. You know, we we connected, and I, I'm gonna wrap this up because because you know I, I could talk I literally could talk about this um, all day, but I I'm just I'm concerned about the ways that people. Not only how their brains will develop from their inability to reflect and, you know, have their minds be idle, but also like socially. If you speak to children now, I I feel like – and this is very hard to measure quantitatively through any sort of like empirical research, but I feel like kids are more awkward today where they can't – they can't conduct improvised conversation. It's very much like they – You know, can can create a text message that's very calculated, but they can't they can't quite carry a conversation. It can't be witty and sharp. You know, everyone's a comedian now with Twitter and Instagram and memes, but it's it's different. And I fear that cell phones are to blame. So, just just really quick, that's the problem. People are terrified of being bored. Um, one more thing before I get to the solution here that that I found is uh, I I also think people are getting lazy because of the cell phones. Like, if you struggle to remember something for a tenth of a second, you'll just Google it. Um, Back when I was a kid, seventh grade, we would learn all the countries in the world and draw them on a map. Kids nowadays don't need to do that because they can just search it on Google. Um, It's been scientifically shown that if you take a photo, you're essentially outsourcing your memory to your brain. And you remember things less vividly, right? Like, say versus you on vacation and you take a picture. I mean, you, you see this all the time. Like, people are just snapping photos of everything on the vacation. Um... What what never made sense to me was is people that video or photograph like fireworks, you know you, you'll go to a baseball game there'll be fireworks after the game everyone has their phone out, I'm just like, are you really, are you really gonna open your phone, you know a year from now and be like oh yeah I remember it oh let, let's watch it no come on, um, but the the research has shown that any time you take a photo you're you're depending on your brain the the external brain to actually remember, excuse me, your phone to remember it so your brain doesn't have to. It sucks. So, silver lining here. What can we do about it? I was reading this book uh, called Bored and Brilliant by Manoush Zomorodi. Very, very good. Highly recommend it. Talks about a lot of the stuff that that I've mentioned um, conceptually, thematically. And the Bored and Brilliant challenge that Manoush Zomorodi piloted is essentially a way to use your phone less you're not gonna quit cold turkey nobody's gonna lock your phone in a safety deposit box um, and you know and make you uh, write letters to your friends although you know that that'd probably be pretty good but every day of the week you you find a different way to um, rely less on your phone so one day you're just not allowed to take any photos whatsoever. Another day, you can't use your phone while in transit so not when walking driving or, or riding the subway or what have you another day you delete your favorite app and at the end of the week after you do all these challenges you report back on n- not only how much how much less you used your phone but how, like how much less you wanted to use your phone and what people found uh you know h- hundreds thousands of people in new york did this challenge uh pr- I, excuse me across the country and they found that um, once the challenge was over, they just didn't feel like using their phone anymore. You know, instead of pulling out their phone on the, on the train, they pulled out a book. Instead of, you know, staring at their phone and, and walking down the street, they looked at what was going on around them. So definitely urge you, check out the Board and Brilliant Challenge um, and try try some of those measures in order to cut back on your phone use. It's serious, guys. This is not going to get any better. Yes, the regulations are promising, um, but in the end, you know, we live in a free market, capitalist economy and, and democratic society. The choice is with you, how you want to spend your time, how you want to you know, use that attention because there's only 24 hours in a day, and do you really want to spend six of those staring at a little screen? All right, let's talk some baseball, guys. Anyone that knows me knows I'm a baseball superfan, um, particularly of the New York Mets cursed franchise. Uh, I mentioned my Twitter account, I think, in, in episode one. You know, I use the Twitter for all sorts of potpourri, but it's a lot of, a lot of venting about the Mets. Um, if you're a fan of baseball, you know that the Hall of Fame vote was uh, last week, and um, Happens every year. Folks that have been uh, out of the game for you know four or five years uh, have the opportunity to be inducted by the National Baseball Writers Association into the Hall of Fame. There were four new inductees. You might have heard of a couple of these. Mariano Rivera, uh, Roy Halladay, Mike Mussina, and Edgar Martinez. Um, now, Mariano Rivera, obviously mixed feelings about him because he was on the, the Yankees, but definitely ultra deserving, especially, you know, being the, the, the only ever unanimous 100% vote getter. Look, I saw Mariano every year in the Subway Series when he faced the Mets, and he was, he, he, I mean, the, the, the guy had one pitch, the guy had a cutter. And Michael Young posted on Twitter that they, in the on-deck circle, the players used to indicate to the batter by dropping one of the, the donut weights to the ground where the catcher was setting up. And that didn't make a difference, right? Michael Young could, could, you know, could let his teammate know, hey, he's throwing a cutter inside, but you're still not going to hit it, you know, just because he was so dominant with that one pitch. Um, I'll always remember with him. I think it was like his 500th save or, or something, and Krod was was pitching for the Mets, bases loaded, and Krod just walked him on four pitches. I, I just Ugh, and Mariano got his first ever RBI. That's, I mean, that's, that's the Mets for you, but Mariano was one of the best ever. Um, Roy Holiday, also incredible. Uh, received the award posthumously just because he, he passed away. And he, he's another one that always killed the Mets. Literally, like, whenever he started, it was for, mostly for the Phillies when he was in Philadelphia. It was just guaranteed to be a complete game shutout or a no-hitter. Um, I did read that he's not going to wear a cap in the Hall of Fame. Because he loved both franchises. To me, that sounds a little bit farcical. He played with the Blue Jays, what, like 15 years, 10, you know, 12, 15 years, whatever it is. He played with the Phillies for four seasons. Come on. I, I know that, you know, he he pitched in, in the playoffs and all that. But come on. Like, he, he should be a Blue Jay. Um, I do want to discuss Clemens and Bonds because... These guys are, you know, this is the most controversial element of the Hall of Fame. You know, these are on paper two of the best baseball players who ever lived, you know, but they're not members of the Hall of Fame. Uh, they haven't been for the last some odd years. And this year they've received like 59% each, um, well short of the 75% they need to be on the Hall of Fame. And barring, there's no, they got another three years on the ballot, guys, barring a huge increase in the next three years, they're going to fall short. Now, before we get into, you know, the um the, you know, the discussion of whether or not st- steroid guys should be in the Hall of Fame, let me ju- let me just read some stats for you. Okay? Um so Clemens Clemens we have 354 wins, a career 3.12 ERA, 4672 strikeouts. Guys, that's almost 5000 strikeouts. 7 Cy Youngs. And an MVP in '86 with the Red Sox. I mean, the guy—the guy, the guy was stupid good. You don't even need to be a baseball fan to be in awe of these numbers with the Red Sox guys in '86, 24 and four with a 2.48 ERA. Then in '90 with the Red Sox, 21 and six with a 193 ERA. Um, I mean, I, I on Baseball Reference, whenever the guy has a career year or leads the league, it's they bold and italicize the number. His entire chart is bolded and italicized. The, the guy was maybe the best pitcher ever on paper. And then Barry Bonds, guys. Oh, my God. Barry Bonds. Okay. 762 home runs, first all-time. Seven MVPs. 13 All-Star appearances. Almost 3,000 hits. 298 career batting average. 444 career OBP. And, I, I mean, the, the the guy between 1990 and 2004... What's that? 15 seasons, the guy was the best hitter on the planet, unquestionable. I mean, he, how many intentional walks? This guy had 120 intentional walks in 2004, all-time, you know, at all-time. Even if you're not a fan of baseball, I mean, this, these, are, these are two of the most, um, you know, accomplished more than anyone else in any sport. On paper, they should be first ballot Hall of Famers, but at this point, they're almost definitely not going to get into the Hall of Fame. Why? Well, the Baseball Writers Association is, is pretty uh, traditional, pretty antiquated in their philosophies. I mean, Pete Rose, a, a, you know, another one of the all-time greats, did not get in because of his um, admission to, to gambling, and he's still not in the Hall of Fame. So there's a hard line against um, you know, gambling and also against steroid use. Uh, and if you read the quotes from some of these guys, you know, some of these writers, they're saying that, look... You know these guys used an illegal substance, so their numbers, sh- you know, should not be treated as equivalent to the numbers of you know a guy like like Babe Ruth or um, you know Greg Maddox or uh, Joe DiMaggio guys that that were clean that didn't use these numbers. But keep in mind, both of these players would have likely been Hall of Famers before they did steroids, right? It's not as if, and I'm not I'm not defending them by any means. Um, but it's not as if uh, the steroids took them from a guy like, uh, you know, Kevin, Kevin Ploiecki, former backup catcher of the Mets, or Ruben Tad, uh, you know, an, an everyman utility guy to the best player in the world. Their numbers before they did these steroids. I mean, look, you don't know exactly when, like what seasons, but the beginning of, of uh, Bonds' career, for example, you know, he was still putting up 33 homers and 114 RBIs, for Clemens, you know, the beginning of his career, he's still, you know, 21 seasons, um, ERA around two, five. So had they not used steroids, they likely would have been hall of famers anyway. So right now the baseball writer, uh, writers have this hard line guys. It, it doesn't look like they're going to get in. Um, you know, maybe the committee will vote in 10, 15 years or so and give them some sort of honorary induction or, or something after the fact. Um, if I were in charge, and I know that I think there's a generational divide on this. I think a lot of the older folk are more conservative, like strict interpretation of this. And, you know, folks my age who grew up in, you know, the, the Derek Jeter, Mike Piazza era, I think pe- uh, we're a little more open-minded. But what I would do is I would put, put them in the Hall of Fame um, but include some sort of special wing or some asterisk or a designation that their careers were affected in some way by their use of performance-enhancing drugs. Yeah, they cheated. It's, it was absolutely not fair. Um, gave them an enormous competitive advantage. And everyone and their mother knows that both of them did it. Um, it, it's just, it's irrefutable, but you can't clean the history of the game, you know, and, and purge steroids from the history any more than you can, you know, cleanse the history of America to not have included slavery or racism. It happened. Um, you know, and, and players like McGuire and Sosa and Palmero and Bonds put up absolutely earth shattering numbers that will probably never be um, you know, broken, especially given how, 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 uh, you know, powerful the, uh, the pitching is nowadays, they'll probably never be broken, but, but it, you know, it happened. And I think you need to, you know, put these guys in, um, and find some way to, to notate and designate that they, they use steroids. But I mean, the numbers, it just doesn't, I think it does a disservice to the game of baseball when you have guys who, You know, you go on, on baseball reference and, and, you know, you look at the the numbers and then you have kids asking their parents, wait a second, you know, Barry Bonds, who's the all-time home run leader, Barry Bonds. How come he's not here in Cooperstown? Which by the way, um, if you haven't been to Cooperstown, you absolutely should go. Uh, even if you're not like a, a big fan of baseball, I, I went with my buddies a year or two ago and Literally, you know, you go, to, you go to a museum and like you want to just stare at something and move along and move along. I was I, – I, I wouldn't move. I was just like like a little um, – like a snail moving from like one exhibit to the next one. I wanted to make sure that I got to see everything. Um, beautiful exhibits. Uh, great, you know, for fans of the game. There's there's a, a lot of rich history there and um, great photo ops as well. So check it out. Um, but anyway, that that's my take on it. I would – absolutely put, uh, Bonds and Clemens in, um, just with that, with that designation. But congrats to Mariano, um, Halliday. I didn't really talk about Mucina or Edgar, uh, but both of them were deserving. Uh, I had, a, I had a little argument with, with, with my roommate about, uh, whether or not Mucina should get in given that his numbers were a little less, uh, you know, stellar than, um, a lot of the, you know, he's no Pedro, he's, he's no, uh, Glavin, Smoltz, or, or Maddox, but, you know, he did pitch in the in the steroid era. Um, he was around for a long time with the Orioles and the Yankees. Um, and you know, he never he never won a Cy Young. He very rarely uh, led the league in you know in, in in pitching categories. But he was durable and he did it for a long time. So kudos to him and to Edgar uh, the DH as well. So that you know that about sums it up. I know we covered a ton of ground today. Um, but takeaways, definitely, uh, you know, try to adopt the Buddhist um, philosophy in order to attenuate that suffering. Uh, make sure that you embrace being bored. Um, you know, try to resist that, that, uh, that urge to pick up your cell phone, um, you know, whenever you feel that, that idly mind creeping in. And, of course, uh, shout out to the Baseball Hall of Fame. Um, excited to see uh, what comes next there. Any thoughts on anything that I uh, discussed, a um, lot of content, a lot of, lot of interesting ideas, shoot me an email, nervoushabitspodcast at gmail.com. That's nervoushabitspodcast at gmail.com. Next week, we're going to be covering... Um, a couple of different topics I'm excited about. Um, First foray into the dating world. We're going to talk about dating in a big city. Why is it so difficult and how are dating apps making it worse for singles? Um, The Patriots are in the Super Bowl again. Will they ever go away? And is Tom Brady now one of the greatest, if not the greatest athletes ever? And finally, do you really need to do cardio at the gym if you're trying to lose weight? Um, thanks so much for joining me uh, I am your host Ricky Rose and this is episode 2 of Nervous Habits podcast look forward to uh, speaking to you guys uh, doing the five next week on Nervous Habits enjoy the rest of your day